Section 6 of The Golden Bow, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2, Part 4. Part 5, Funeral Games. Tradition that the Great Games of Greece originated in funeral celebrations. But a different and at first sight inconsistent explanation of the Olympic festival deserves to be considered. Some of the ancients held that all the great games of Greece, the Olympic, the Nemean, the Isthmian, and the Prathian, were funeral games celebrated in honour of the dead. Thus the Olympic games were supposed to have been founded in honour of Pelops, the great legendary hero who had a sacred priest entered Olympia, where he was honoured above all the other heroes and received annually the sacrifice of a black ram. Once a year, too, all the lads of Peloponnese are said to have lashed themselves on his grave at Olympia, till the blood streamed down their backs as a libation to the departed hero. Similarly, at Roman funerals, the women scratched their faces till they bled for the purpose, as Vera tells us, of pleasing the ghosts with the sight of the flow and blood. So, too, among the Aborigines of Australia, mourners sometimes cut and hacked themselves and allowed the streaming blood to drip on the dead body of their kinsmen, or into the grave. Among the eastern islanders of Torres Straits, in like manner, youths who had lately been initiated and girls who had attained to puberty used to have the lobes of their ears cut as a mourning ceremony, and the flowing blood was allowed to drip on the feet of the corpse as a mark of pity or sorrow. Moreover, young adults of both sexes had patterns cut in their flesh with a sharp shell so that the blood fell on the dead body. The similarity of the savage rites to the Greek custom observed at the grave of Pelops suggests that the tomb was not a mere cenotaph, but that it contained the actual remains of the dead hero, though these have not been discovered by the German excavators of Olympia. In like manner, the Nemean games are said to have been celebrated in honour of the dead, or Feltz, whose grave was shown in Nemea. According to tradition, the Isthmian games were instituted in honour of the dead Melisotes, whose body had been washed ashore at the Isthmus of Corinth. It is said that when this happened, a famine fell upon the Corinthians, and an oracle declared that the evil would not cease until the people paid due obsequies to the remains of the drought Melisertes, and honoured him with funeral games. The Corinthians complied with the injunction for a short time, but as soon as they admitted to celebrate the games, the famine broke out afresh, and the oracle informed them that the honours paid by Melisertes must be eternal. Lastly, the Vithian games are said to have been celebrated in honour of the dead dragon or serpent python. The tradition is confirmed by Greek practice, for in historical times games were instituted to do honour to many famous men in Greece. These Greek traditions as to the funeral origin of the great games are strongly confirmed by Greek practice in historical times. Thus, in the Homeric age, funeral games including chariot races, foot races, wrestling, boxing, spear-throwing, goat-throwing, and archery, were celebrated in honour of dead kings and heroes at their barrows. In the 5th century before Christ, when Miltades, the victor of Marathon, died in the Thracian Chersones, the people offered sacrifices to him as their founder, and instituted equestrian and athletic games in his honour, in which no citizen of Lamsacus was allowed to contend. Near the theatre at Sparta, there were two graves, 
One contained the bones of the gallant Leonidas, which had been brought back from the pass of the Mabilae to rest in Spartan earth. The other held the dust of King Pausanias, who commanded the Greek armies on the great day when they routed the Persian host at Plataea, but who lived to tarnish his laws and to die a traitor's death. Every year speeches were spoken over these graves, and games were held in which none but Spartans might compete. Perhaps in the case of Pausanias, the games were intended rather to avert his anger than to do him honour, for we are told that wizards were fetched even from Italy to lay the traitor's unquiet ghost. Again, when the Spartan general, Brasidas, defending Amphipolis in Thrace against the Athenians, fell mortally wounded before the city and just lived, like wolf on the heights of Abraham, to learn that his men were victorious, all the allies in arms followed the dead soldier to the grave, and the grateful citizens fenced his tomb about, sacrificed to him as a hero, and decreed that his memory should be honoured henceforth with games and annual sacrifices. So too, when Timolon, the saviour of Syracuse, died in the city which he had delivered from tyrants within and defended against enemies without, vast multitudes of men and women, crowned of garlands and clad in clean raiment, attended all that was mortal of the benefactor to the funeral pyre, the voices of praise and beneficent mingling with the sound of lamentations and sobs. But when at last the bier was laid on the pyre, a herald chosen for his sonorous voice proclaimed that the people of Syracuse were bearing Timoleon, and that they would honour him for all time to come with musical equestrian and athletic games, because he had put down the tyrants, conquered the foreign foe, rebuilt the cities that had been laid waste, and restored their free constitutions to the Sicilians. In dedicating the great mausoleum in Halicarnassus to the soul of her dead husband, Mausolus, his widow, Artemisia, instituted a contest of eloquence in his memory, prizes of money and other valuables being offered to such as should pronounce the most splendid panegyrics on the departed. Isaacrate himself is said to have entered for the prize, but to have been vanquished by his pupil, Theopompus. Alexander the Great prepared to pay honour to his dead friend, Hephaestion, by celebrating athletic and musical contests on a greater scale than had ever been witnessed before, and for this purpose he actually assembled three thousand competitors, who shortly afterwards contended at the funeral games of the great conqueror himself. The Greeks also instituted games in honour of large numbers of men who had perished in battle or a massacre. Nor were the Greeks in the habit of instituting games in honour only of a few distinguished individuals. They sometimes established them to perpetuate the memory or to appease the ghosts of large numbers of men who had perished on the field of battle or been massacred in cold blood. When the Carthaginians and Tyrians together had beaten the Phaeacians in a sea fight, they landed their prisoners near Agila in Eturia and stoned them all to death. After that, whenever the people of Agila had their oxen or their sheep passed the scene of the massacre, they were attacked by a strange malady which distorted their bodies and deprived them of the use of their limbs. So they consulted the Delphic oracle, and the priest told them that they must offer great sacrifices to the dead Phaeacians and institute equestrian and athletic games in their honour, no doubt to appease the angry ghosts of the murdered men who were supposed to be doing the mischief. At Plataea, down to the second century of our era, might be seen the graves of the great men who fell in battle with the Persians. Sacrifices were offered to them every year with great solemnity, the chief magistrate of Plataea, clad in a purple robe, washed with his own hands the tombstones and anointed them with scented oil. 
he slaughtered a black bull over a burning pyre and called upon the dead warriors to come and partake of the banquet and the blood then filling a bowl of wine and pouring a libation he said i drink to the men who died for the freedom of greece moreover games were celebrated every fourth year in honour of these heroic dead the principal prizes being offered for a race in armour at athens funeral games were held in the academy to commemorate the men slain in war who were buried in the neighbouring ceramicus and sacrifices were offered to them at a pit the games were superintended and the sacrifices offered by the polemarch or minister of war funeral games have been celebrated in honour of the dead by other peoples both in ancient and modern times similar honours have been paid to the spirits of the departed by many other peoples both ancient and modern thus in antiquity the thracians burned or buried their dead having raised mounds over their remains they held games of all kinds on the spot assigning them principal prizes to victory in single combat at rome funeral games were celebrated and gladiators fought in honour of distinguished men who had just died the games were sometimes held in the forum thus in the year 216 bc when marcus aemilius lepidus died who had been twice consul his three sons celebrated funeral games in the forum for three days and two and twenty pairs of gladiators fought on the occasion again in the year 200 bc funeral games were held for four days in the forum and five and twenty pairs of gladiators fought in honour of the deceased m valerius lavinus the expense of the ceremonies being defrayed by the two sons of the dead man once more when the pontifex maximus publicius lucinius crassus died at the beginning of the year 183 bc funeral games were celebrated in his honour for three days 120 gladiators fought and the ceremonies concluded with a banquet for which the tables were spread in the forum these games and combats were doubtless intended to please and soothe the ghost of the recently departed just as we saw that roman women lacerated their faces for a similar purpose similarly when the southern nicobaris dig up the bones of their dead clean them and bury them again they hold a feast at which sham fights with quarter staves take place to gratify the departed spirit in futuna an island in the south pacific when a death has taken place friends express their grief by cutting their faces breast and arms with shells and at the funeral festival which follows pairs of boxers commonly engage in combats by way of honouring the deceased in laos the province of siam boxers are similarly engaged to bruise each other at the festival which takes place when the remains of a chief or the important person are cremated the festival lasts three days but it is while the pyre is actually blazing that the combatants are expected to batter each other's heads with the utmost vigour among the Kyrgyz, the anniversary of the death of the rich man is celebrated with a great feast with horse races shooting matches and wrestling matches it is said that thousands of sheep and hundreds of horses besides sleighs coats of mail and a great many other objects are sometimes distributed as prizes among the winners the bashkirs a tartar people of mixed extraction bury their dead and always in the obsequies with horse races among some of the north american indians contests in running shooting and so forth formed part of the funeral celebration funeral games among the bedouins and among the peoples of the Caucasus. the bedouins of the sinaitic peninsula observe a great annual festival at the grave of the prophet saleh and camel races are included in the ceremonies at the end of the races a procession takes place round the prophet's grave 
out of which the sacrificial victims are led to the door of the mortuary chapel. There is a cut-off, and the doorposts are smeared with their streaming blood. The custom of holding funeral games in honour of the dead appears to be common among the people of the Caucasus. Thus in Circassia, the anniversary of the death of a distinguished warrior or chief is celebrated for years with horse races, foot races, and various kinds of martial and athletic exercises, for which prizes are awarded to the successful competitors. Among the Chusurs, another people of the Caucasus, horse races are held at the funeral of a rich man. The prizes of cattle and sheep are given to the winners. Poor folk content themselves with a competition in shooting and with more modest prizes. Similar celebrations take place on the anniversary of the death. In like manner, shooting matches form a feature of an annual festival of all souls when the spirits of departed Chusurs are believed to revisit their old village. Adults and children alike take part in the matches, and adults shooting with guns and the children with bows and arrows. The prizes consist of loaves, stockings, gloves, and so forth. Among the Yabchases and other people of the Caucasus, two years after death, a memorial feast is held in honour of the deceased at which animals are killed and measures taken to appease his soul of the departed. For they believe that if the ghost is discontented, he can injure them and their property. The horse of the deceased figures prominently at the festival. After the guests have feasted a long table spread in the open air, the young men perform evolutions on horseback which are said to recall the tournaments of the Middle Ages, and children of eight or nine years of age ride races on horseback. Games periodically held in order of some famous man might in time assume the character of a great fair. Thus it appears that many different peoples have been in the habit of holding games, including horse races in honour of the dead, and as the ancient Greeks unquestionably did so within historical times for men whose existence is as little open to question as that of Wellington and Napoleon, we cannot dismiss as improbable the tradition that the Olympic and perhaps other great Greek games were instituted to commemorate real men who once lived, died, and were buried on the spot where the festivals were afterwards held. When the person so commemorated has been great and powerful in his lifetime, his ghost will be deemed great and powerful after death, and the games celebrated in his honour might naturally attract crowds of spectators. The need of providing food and accommodation for the multitude which assembled on these occasions would in turn draw numbers of hucksters and merchants to the spot, and thus what in its origin has been a solemn religious ceremony might gradually assume more and more the character of a fair, that is, of a concourse of people brought together mainly for purpose of trade and amusement. This theory might account for the origin not only of the Olympic and other Greek games, but also for that of the great fairs or public assemblies of ancient Ireland, which have been compared, not without reason, to the Greek games. The great Irish fairs of Tailtin and Carmen, in which horse races play a prominent part, are said to have been instituted in honour of the dead. Indeed, the two most famous of these Irish festivals, in which horse races played a prominent part, are actually said to have been instituted in honour of the dead. Most celebrated of all was the fair of Teltio or Teltian, held at a place in the country of Meath, which is now called Teltown, on the Blackwater, midway between Navan and Kells. The festival lasted for a fortnight before Lammas, the 1st of August, and a fortnight afterward. 
among the many sports and contests which formed the leading future of the fair horse races held the principal place but trade was not neglected and among the wares brought to market were marriageable women who according to tradition which survived into the nineteenth century were bought and sold as wives for one year the very spot where the marriages took place is still pointed out by the peasantry they call it marriage hollow multitudes flocked to the fair not only from all parts of ireland but even from scotland as a fisher recorded that in the year eleven sixty nine a d the horses and chariots alone exclusive of the people on foot extended in a continuous line for more than six english miles from tailton to mullock at now the hill of lloyd near kells the irish historians relate that the fair of tailton was instituted by lug in honour of his foster mother tailteo who he buried under a great subaltra mound on the spot ordering that a commemorative festival with games and sports should be celebrated there annually forever the other great fair of ancient ireland was held only once in three years at carmen now called wixford in leinster it began on lammas day the first of august and lasted six days the horse race took place on each day of the festival in different parts of the green there were separate markets for victuals for cattle and horses and for gold and precious stuffs of the merchants harpers harped and pipes piped for the entertainment of the crowds and in other parts of the fair bards recited in the ears of rapt listeners old and romantic tales of forays and cattle raids of battles and murders of love and courtship and marriage prizes were awarded to the best performers in every art in the book of ballymote the fair of carmen or garman is said to have been founded in accordance with the dying wish of a chief named garman who is buried on the spot after begging that a fair of mourning anak naguba should be instituted for him and should bear his name forever it was considered an institution of great importance and among the blessings promised to the men of leinster from holding it and duly celebrating the established games were plenty of corn fruit and milk abundance of fish in the lakes and rivers domestic prosperity and immunity from the yeah. of any other province on the other hand the evils to follow from neglect of this institution were to be failure and early greyness on them and their kings indeed most of the great irish fairs are said to have originated in funeral games nor were these two great fairs the only ancient irish festivals of the sort which are reported to have been founded in honour of the dead the annual fair at emain is said to have been established to lament the death of queen maka of the golden hair who had her palace on the spot in short most of the great meetings by whatever name known had their origin in funeral games Tara, Tailten, Slachka, Ashna, Krochan, Emain Maka, and other less prominent meeting places are well known as ancient pagan cemeteries, in all of which many illustrious semi-historical personages were interred, and many sepulchral monuments remain in them to this day. There was a notion that Carmen was a cemetery, that their kings and queens had been buried, and that the games and horse races which formed the principal attraction of the fair had been instituted in honour of the dead folk on whose graves the feet of the assembled multitude were treading the same view is taken of the fairs of tailteal and crocan tailteal and crocan were cemeteries before they served periodically as places of assembly for business and pleasure the tombs of the first kings of ulster were at Tailton. the great irish fairs were held on the first of august Lammas, which seems to have been an old harvest festival 
of first fruits. If we ask whether the tradition as to the funeral origin of these great Irish fairs is true or false, it is important to observe the date at which they were commonly celebrated. The date was the 1st of August, or Lugnasad, that is, the Nasad, or Games of Lug, as the day is still called in every part of Ireland. This was the date of the great fair of Crouchen, as well as of Tailton and Carmen. Now, the 1st of August is our Lamnas Day, a name derived from the Anglo-Saxon Helafnes, that is, Loaf Mass, or Bread Mass, and the name marks the day as a mass or feast of thanksgiving for the first fruits of the corn harvest, which in England and Ireland usually ripen about that time. The feast seems to have been observed with bread of new wheat, and therefore in some parts of England, and even in some near Oxford, the tenants are bound to bring in wheat of that year to their lord, on or before the 1st of August. But if the festival of the 1st of August was in its origin an offering of the first fruits of the corn harvest, we can easily understand the great importance which the ancient Irish attached to it, and why they should have thought that its observers ensured a plentiful crop of corn as well as abundance of fruit and milk and fish whereas the neglect of the festival would entail the failure of these things and cause the hair of their kings to turn prematurely grey. For it is a widespread custom among primitive agricultural peoples to offer the first fruits of the harvest to divine beings, whether gods or spirits, before any person may eat of the new crops, and wherever such customs are observed, we may assume that an omission to offer the first fruits must be supposed to endanger the crops and the general prosperity of the community by exciting the wrath of the gods and spirits who conceive themselves to be robbed of their dues. Now among the divine beings who are thus propitiated, the souls of the dead ancestors take in many tribes a prominent or even exclusive place, and that these ancestors are not creations of the mythical fancy, but were once men of flesh and blood, is sometimes demonstrated by the substantial evidence of their skulls, to which the offerings are made and in which the spirits are supposed to take up their abode for the purpose of partaking of the food presented to them. Sometimes the ceremonies are designated by the expressive name of feeding the dead. If the great Irish fairs were instituted in honour of the dead, we can understand why their observance was supposed to ensure plenty of corn, fruit, milk and fish. All this tends to support the traditional explanation of the great Irish fairs held at the beginning of August, when the first corn is ripe, four of these festivals were indeed celebrated, as they are said to have been, at cemeteries where kings and other famous men were buried, and in the horse races and other games which form the most prominent feature of the celebrations were indeed instituted, as they are said to have been, in honour of dead men and women. We can perfectly understand why the observance of the festivals at the games was supposed to ensure a plentiful harvest and abundance of fruit and fish whereas the neglect to celebrate them was believed to entail the failure of these things. So long as the spirits of the dead men and women who were buried on the spot received the homage of their descendants in the shape of funeral games and perhaps the first fruits, so long they would bless their people with plenty by causing the earth to bring forth its fruits, the cows to yield milk and the waters to swarm with fish. Whereas if they deemed themselves slighted and neglected, they would average their wrongs by cutting off the food supply and afflicting the people with dearth and other calamities. Among these threatened calamities, the premature greatness of the kings is specially mentioned, and was probably deemed not the least serious, for we have seen that the welfare of the whole people is often deemed to be bound up 
with the physical vigour of the king and that the appearance of grey hairs on his head and wrinkles on his face is sometimes viewed with apprehension and proves the signal for putting him to death similarly the abcases of the causes imagine that if they do not honour a dead man by horse races and other festivities his ghost will be angry with them and visit his displeasure on their persons and their property in this connection it is significant that the celebration of the isthmian games at corinth in order the dead melichotes is said to have been instituted for the purpose of staying a famine and that the intermission in the games was immediately followed by a fresh visitation of the calamity analogy suggests that the famine may have been ascribed to the anger of the ghost of melichotes at the neglect of his funeral honours but the theory of the funeral origin of the olympic games does not explain all the legends connected with them thus on the whole the theory of the funeral origin of the great greek games is supported not only by greek tradition and greek custom but by the evidence of parallel customs observed in many lands yet the theory seems hardly adequate to explain all the features in the legends of the foundation and early history of the olympic games for if these contests were instituted merely to please and probitate the soul of a prince named pelops who was buried on the spot what are we to make of the tradition that the foot race was found in order to determine the successor to the kingdom or of the similar though not identical tradition that the kingdom and the hand of the king's daughter were awarded as a prize to him who could vanquish the king in a chariot race while death was a penalty inflicted on the beaten charioteer such legends can hardly have been pure fictions they probably reflect some real custom observed at Olympia. Suggested theory of the origin of the Olympic Games We may perhaps combine them with the tradition of the funeral origin of the Games by supposing that victory in the race entitled the winner to reign as a divine king, the embodiment of a god, for a term of years, with a four or eight years according to the interval between successive celebrations of the festival, that when the term had expired, the human god must again submit his title to the crown to the hazard of a race for the purpose of proving that his bodily vigour was unimpaired that if he failed to do so he had lost both his kingdom and his life and lastly that the spirits of these divine kings like those of the divine kings of their shilluk were worshipped with sacrifices at their graves and were thought to delight in the spectacle of the games which reminded them of the laurels they had themselves won long ago amid the plaudits of a vast multitude in the sunshine and dust of the racecourse before they join their shadowy company of ghosts in the darkness and silence of the tomb the theory would explain the existence of the sacred precinct of pelops at olympia where the black rams the characteristic offerings to the dead were sacrificed to the hero and where the young men lashed themselves to the blood dripped from their backs on the ground a sight well pleasing to the grim bloodthirsty ghost lurking unseen below Perhaps, too, the theory may explain the high mound, at some distance from Olympia, which passes for the grave of the sewers of Hippodamia, to whose shades Pelops is said to have sacrificed as to heroes every year. It is possible that the men buried in the great barrow were not, as tradition had it, the suitors who contended in the chariot race for the hand of Hippodamia, and being defeated were slain by her relentless father. There may have been men who, like Pelops himself, had won the kingdom and a bride in the chariot race and after enjoying the regal dignity imposing his incarnate deities for a term of years had been finally defeated in the race and put to death the olympic games not a harvest festival but based on astronomical considerations whatever may be thought of these speculations 
the great olympic festival cannot have been like our lamas a harvest festival the quadrennial period of the celebration in the season of the year which it fell but halfway between the corn reaping of early summer and the vintage of mid-autumn alike exclude the supposition and alike point to an astronomical not an agricultural basis of the solemnity accordingly we seem driven to conclude that if the winners male and female in the olympic games indeed represented divinities these divinities must have been personifications of astronomical not agricultural powers in short that the victors posed as embodiments of the sun and moon then at the prime of their radiant power and glory whose meeting in the heavenly bride chamber of the sky after years of separation was mimicked and magically promoted by the nuptials of their human representatives on earth part six the slaughter of the dragon widespread myth of the slaughter of a great dragon in the foregoing discussion it has been suggested that delphi thebes salamis and athens were once ruled by kings who had in modern language a serpent or dragon for their crest and were believed to migrate at death into the bodies of the beasts by the legends of the dragon admit of another and at first sight at least discrepant explanation it is difficult to separate them from those similar tales of the slaughter of a great dragon which are current in many lands and have commonly been interpreted as nature myths in other words as personifications of physical phenomena of such tales the oldest known versions are the ancient babylonian and the ancient indian the babylonian story of the slaying of tiamat by marduk is a myth of the creation of cosmos out of chaos the babylonian myth relates how in the beginning the mighty god marduk fought and killed the great dragon tiamat an embodiment of the primeval watery chaos and now after his victory he created the present heaven and earth by splitting the huge carcass of the monster into halves and setting one of them up to form the sky while the other half apparently he used to fashion the earth thus a story is a myth of creation in language which its authors doubtless understood literally but which more advanced thinkers afterwards interpreted figuratively it describes how confusion was reduced to order how a cosmos emerged from chaos the account of creation given in the first chapter of genesis which has been so much praised for its simple grandeur and sublimity is merely a rationalized version of the old myth of the fight with the dragon a myth which for crudity of thought deserves to rank with the quaint fancies of the lowest savages indian story of the slaying of vitra by indra again the indian myth embodied in the hymns of the rigveda tells how the strong and valiant god indra conquered a great dragon or serpent named vitra which had obstructed the waters so that they could not flow he slew the monster with his bolt and then the pent-up springs gushed in rivers to the sea and what he did once he continues to do again and again he renews the conflict again and again he slays the dragon and releases the imprisoned waters prayers are addressed to him that he would be pleased to do so in the future even priests on earth sometimes associate themselves with indra in his battles with the dragon the worshipper is said to have placed the bolt in the god's hands and the sacrifice is spoken of as having helped the weapon slay the monster thus the fate attributed to indra would seem to be a mythical account not so much of creation as of some regularly recurring phenomenon the story may be a myth descriptive of the beginning of the rainy season in india it has been plausibly interpreted as a description of the bursting of the first storms of rain and thunder after the torrid heat of an indian summer at such times all nature exhausted by the drought longs for coolness and moisture 
day after day men and cattle may be tormented by the sight of clouds that gather and then pass away without disburdening themselves of their contents at last a long-drawn struggle between the rival forces comes to a crisis the sky darkens thunder peals lightning flashes and the welcome rain descends in sheets drenching the parched earth and flooding the rivers such a battle of the elements might well present itself to the primitive mind in the guise of a conflict between a maleficent dragon of drought and a beneficent god of thunder and rain the cloud dragon has swallowed the waters and keeps them shut up in the black coils of his sinuous body the god cleaves the monster's belly with his thunderbolts and the imprisoned water has escaped in the form of dripping rain and rushing stream similarly the other tales of the sword of the dragon may be mythical descriptions of the changes of the seasons in other countries a similar myth might with appropriate variations of detail express in like manner the passage of one season to another for example in more rigorous climates the dragon might stand for the dreary winter and the dragon slayer for the genial summer the myths of apollo and the python of st george and the dragon have thus been interpreted as symbolizing the victory of summer over winter similarly it has been held with much probability that the babylonian legend of marduk and tiamat reflects the annual change which transforms the valley of the euphrates in spring during the winter the wide babylonian plain flooded by the heavy rains looks like a sea for which the babylonian word is tiantu tiamat then comes a spring when with the growing power of the sun the clouds vanish the waters subside and dry land of vegetation appear once more on this hypothesis the dragon tiamat represents the clouds the rain the floods of winter while marduk stands for the vernal or summer sun which dispels the powers of darkness and moisture the cosmological significance of the babylonian myth may have been an afterthought the early philosophers picturing the creation of the world on the analogy of the change from winter to summer but if the combat of marduk and tiamat was primarily a mythical description of the babylonian spring it would seem that this cosmological significance as an account of creation must have been an afterthought the early philosophers who mediated on the origin of things may have pictured to themselves the creation or evolution of the world on the analogy of the great changes which outside the tropics pass over the face of nature every year in these changes it is not hard to discern or to imagine a conflict between two hostile forces or principles the principle of construction or of life and the principle of destruction or of death victory inclining now to the one and now to the other according as winter yields to spring or summer phase into autumn it would be natural enough to suppose that the same mighty rivals which still wage war on each other had done so from the beginning and that the formation of the universe as it now exists had resulted from the shock of their battle on this theory the creation of the world is repeated every spring and its dissolution is threatened every autumn the one is proclaimed by summer's gay heralds the opening flowers the other is whispered by winter's sad harbingers the yellow leaves here as elsewhere the old creed is echoed by the poet's fancy non alois prima crescentelis origin mandi in laxisse des alumve abusie torinorum crediderium ver illad erat ver magnus agabat orbis et hubernus parasabat flatubisiri cum primae lucum picades hersier 
Virumonge. Feria progenies duris capat extulitaris. In misique ferre silvis et sidera calo. Thus ceremonies intended to hasten the departure of winter are in a sense attempts to repeat the creation of the world. Thus the ceremonies which in many lands have been performed to hasten the departure of winter or stay the flight of summer are in a sense attempts to create the world afresh or to remould it nearer to the heart's desire. But if we would set ourselves at the point of view of the old satyrs who devised means so feeble to accomplish a purpose so immeasurably vast, we must divest ourselves of our modern conceptions of the immensity of the universe and of the pettiness and insignificance of man's place in it. We must imagine the infinitude of space shrunk to a few miles, the infinitude of time contracted to a few generations. To the savage, the mountains that bound the visible horizon, or the sea that stretches away to meet it, is the world's end. Beyond these narrow limits, his feet have never strayed, and even his imagination fails to conceive what lies across the waste of waters or in the far blue hills. Of the future he hardly thinks, and of the past he knows only what has been handed down to him by the word of mouth from his savage forefathers. To suppose that a world, thus circumscribed in space and time, was created by the efforts, or the fiat, of a being like himself, imposes no great strain on his credulity, and he may without much difficulty imagine that he himself can annually repeat the work of creation by his charms and incantations. And once a horde of savages has instituted magic ceremonies for the renewal or preservation of all things, the force of custom and tradition which tend to maintain them in practice long after the old narrow ideas of the universe have been superseded by more adequate conceptions, and the tribe had expanded into a nation. In Babylon and India, the myth of the slaughter of the dragon may have been acted as a magical ceremony to hasten the advent of summer or of the rainy season. Neither in Babylon nor in India, indeed, so far as I am aware, is there any direct evidence that the story of the slaughter of the dragon was ever acted as a miracle play or magical rite for the sake of bringing about those natural events which it describes in figurative language. But analogy leads us to conjecture that in both countries the myth may have been recited, if not acted, as an incantation for the purpose I have indicated. New Year Festival of Zagmak at Babylon at Babylon, the recitation may have formed part of the great New Year festival of Marduk, which under the name of Zegmak, was celebrated with great pomp about the vernal equinox. In this connection, it may not be without significance. The one version of the Babylonian legend of creation has been found inscribed on a tablet, of which the reverse exhibits an incantation intended to be recited for the purification of the temple of Ezida in Boiseba. Now, Izita was the temple of Nabu, or Nebo, a god closely associated, if not originally identical, with Marduk. Indeed, Hammurabi, the great king of Babylon, dedicated the temple in question to Marduk, not to Nabu. It seems not improbable, therefore, that the creation legend in which Marduk played so important a part was recited as an incantation at the purification of the temple, Izida. The ceremony perhaps took place at the Zagmunk festival, when the image of Nabu was solemnly brought in procession from his temple in Bursipa to the great temple of Marduk in Babylon. 
Moreover, it was believed that at this great festival the fates were determined by Marduk or Nabu for the ensuing year. Now the creation myth relates how, after he had slain the dragon, Marduk wrested the tablets of destiny from Ningu, the paramour of Tiamat, sealed them with a seal, and laid them on his breast. We may conjecture that the dramatic representation of this incident formed part of the annual determination of the fates of Zagmat. In short, it seems probable that the whole myth of creation was annually recited and acted at this great spring festival as a charm to dispel the storms and floods of winter, and to hasten the coming of summer. Part played by the king in the drama of the Sword of the Dragon Whenever sacred dramas of this sort were acted as magical rites for the regulation of the seasons, it would be natural that the chief part should be played by the king, at first in his character of head magician, and afterwards as representative and embodiment of the beneficent god who vanquishes the powers of evil. If, therefore, the myth of the sword of the dragon was ever acted with this intention, the king would, appropriately, figure in the play as a victorious champion while the defeated monster would be represented by an actor of inferior rank. But it is possible that under certain circumstances the distribution of parts in the drama might be somewhat different. When the tenure of the regal office was limited to a fixed time, at the end of which the king was inexorably put to death, the fatal part of the dragon might be assigned to the monarch as a representative of the old order. The old year, or the old cycle, which was passing away, while the part of victorious god or hero might be supported by a successor and executioner. Suggested reconciliation of the totemic with the cosmological interpretation of the sword of the dragon. An hypothesis of this latter sort would, to a certain extent, reconcile the two apparently discrepant interpretations of the myth, which have been discussed in the preceding pages, and which for the sake of distinction may be called the totemic, and the cosmological interpretations respectively. The serpent or dragon might be the sacred animal or totem of the royal house at the same time that it stood mythically for certain cosmological phenomena, whether moisture or drought, cold or heat, winter or summer. In like manner, any other species of animal which serves as the totem of the royal family might simultaneously possess a cosmological significance as a symbol of an elemental power. Thus at Gnosis, as we have seen reason to think, the bull was at once the king's crest, and an emblem of the sun. Similarly, in Egypt, the war was a symbol both of the sun and of the king. The oldest royal capital known to us was Hierakonpolis, or Hawktown, and the first Egyptian king, of whom we hear, had for his only royal title the name of Hawk. At the same time, the hawk was with the Egyptians an emblem of the sun. Hawks were kept in the sun god's temple, and the deity himself was commonly represented in art as a man with a hawk's head and the disc of the sun above it. However, I am fully sensible of the slipperiness and uncertainty of the ground I am treading, and it is with great diffidence that I submit these speculations to the judgment of my readers. The subject of ancient mythology is involved in dense mists, which it is not always possible to penetrate and illumine, even with the lamp of the comparative method. Demonstration in such matters is rarely, if ever, attainable. The utmost that a can inquire can claim for his conclusions is a reasonable degree of probability. Future researchers may clear up the obscurity which still rests on the myth of the slaughter of the dragon, and may thereby ascertain what measure of truth, if any there is, in suggested interpretations. Part 7 
Tranial tenure of the kingship. In the province of Lagos, which forms part of southern Nigeria, the Ajibu tribe of the Yoruba race is divided into two branches, which are known respectively as the Ajibu Ode and the Ajibu Remon. The Ode branch of the tribe is ruled by a chief who bears the title of Awajel, and is surrounded by a great deal of mystery. Down to recent times, his face might not be seen even by his own subjects, and if circumstances obliged him to communicate with them, he did so through a screen which hid him from view. The other, or Remon branch, of the Ajibu tribe is governed by a chief who ranks below the Awajel. Mr. John Parkinson was informed that, in former times, this subordinate chief used to be killed with ceremony after a rule of three years. As the country is now under British protection, the custom of putting the chief to death at the end of a three years' reign has long been abolished, and Mr. Parkinson was unable to ascertain any particulars on the subject. Part 8. Annual Tenure of the Kingship Evidence of an Annual Tenure of the Kingship at Babylon at Babylon, within historical times, the tenure of the kingly office was in practice lifelong, yet in theory it would seem to have been merely annual. For every year at the festival of Zagmak, the king had to renew his power by seizing the hands of the image of Marduk in the great temple of Esagil at Babylon. Even when Babylon passed under the power of Assyria, the monarchs of that country were expected to legalize their claims to the throne every year by coming to Babylon and performing the ancient ceremony at the New Year festival, and some of them found the obligation is so burdensome that rather than discharge it they renounced the title of king altogether and contented themselves with the humbler one of governor further would seem that in very early times the kings of babylon were put to death at the end of a year's reign further would appear that in remote times though not within the historical period the kings of babylon or their barbarous predecessors forfeited not merely their crown but their life for the end of a year's tenure of office at least this is a conclusion to which the following evidence seems to point. According to the historian Berossus, who, as a Babylonian priest, spoke with ample knowledge, it was annually celebrated in Babylon a festival called the Sasia. The mock king put to death at the festival of the Sasia was probably a substitute for the real king. It began on the sixteenth day of the month of Laos and lasted for five days. During these five days, masters and servants changed places, the servants giving orders and the masters obeying them. A prisoner condemned to death was dressed in the king's robes, seated on the king's throne, allowed to issue whatever commands he pleased, to eat, drink and enjoy himself, and lie with the king's concubines. But at the end of the five days, he was stripped of his royal robes, scourged and hanged or impaled. During his brief term of office, he bore the title of Zorganes, this custom might perhaps have been explained as merely a grim jest perpetrated in a season of jollity at the expense of an unhappy criminal. But one circumstance, the leave given to the mock king to enjoy the king's concubines, is decisive against this interpretation. Considering the jealous seclusion of an oriental despot's harem, we may be quite certain that permission to invade it would never have been granted by the despot, least of all to condemned criminal except for the very gravest cause. This cause could hardly be other than that the condemned man was about to die in the king's stead, and that to make the substitution perfect, it was necessary he should enjoy the full rights of royalty during his brief reign. There is nothing surprising in this substitution. 
for all that the king must be put to death either on the appearance of any symptom of bodily decay or the end of a fixed period is certainly one which sooner or later the kings would seek to abolish or modify as we have seen that in ethiopia sofala neyo the rule was boldly set aside by enlightened monarchs and that in calicut the old custom of killing a king at the end of twelve years was changed into permission granted twenty one at the end of the twelve years period to attack the king and in the event of killing him to reign in his stead though as the king took care of these times to be surrounded by his guards the permission was little more than a form another way of modifying the stern old rule is seen in the babylonian custom just described when the time drew near for the king to be put to death in babylon this appears to have been at the end of a single year's reign he abdicated for a few days during which a temporary king reigned and suffered in his stead at first the temporary king may have been an innocent person possibly a member of the king's own family but with the growth of civilization the sacrifice of an innocent person would be revolting to the public sentiment and accordingly a condemned criminal would be invested with brief and fatal sovereignty in the sequel we shall find other examples of a dying criminal representing a dying god for we must not forget that as the case of the Shilic kings clearly shows the king is slain in his character of a god or a demigod his death and resurrection as the only means perpetuating the divine life unimpaired being deemed necessary for the salvation of his people and the world the festival of the Sasian was perhaps identical with zekmuk if at babylon before the dawn of history the king himself used to be slain at the festival of the Sasia, it is natural to suppose that the Sasia was no other than zekmuk or zekmuk the great new year festival at which down to historical times the king's power had to be formally renewed by a religious ceremony in the temple of marduk the theory of the identity of the festivals is indeed strongly supported by many considerations and has been accepted by some eminent scholars but it has to encounter a serious chronological difficulty since zegmak fell about the equinox in spring whereas Sasia, according to Berossus, was held on the sixteenth of the month Lus which was the tenth month of the Syrio-Macedonian calendar and appears to have nearly coincided with July. Festival of Zagmark in Assyria The question of the sameness or difference of these festivals will be discussed later on. Here is to be observed that Zagmark was apparently celebrated in Assyria as well as in Babylonia, for at the end of his great inscription, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, expresses a wish that it may be granted to him to muster all his riding horses and so forth every year at Zagmuk in his palace trace of an annual tenure of the kingship in assyria but whether the power of the assyrian kings had like that of the babylonian monarchs to be annually renewed at this festival we do not know however a trace of an annual tenure of the kingly office in assyria may perhaps as dr c brockleman thinks be detected in the rule that an Assyrian king regularly gave his name only to a single year of his reign, while all the other years were named after certain officers and provincial governors, about thirty in number, who were appointed for this purpose to succeed each other according to a fixed rotation. But we know too little about the institution of the Linu, or eponymate, to allow us to express this argument for an annual tenure of the kingship in Assyria. A reminiscence of Zagmunk seems to linger in the belief of the Yezidis that on New Year's Day God sits on his throne arranging the decrees for the coming year, 
assigned to dignitaries at various offices and delivering to them their credentials under his signature and seal. Slaves sacrifice instead of their masters in West Africa. The view that at Babylon the condemned prisoner who wore the royal robes was slain as a substitute for the king may be supported by the practice of West Africa, where at the funeral of a king slaves used sometimes to be dressed up as ministers of state and then sacrificed in that character instead of the real ministers, their masters, who purchased for a sum of money the privilege of thus dying by proxy. Such vicarious sacrifices were witnessed by Catholic missionaries at Ponto Novo on the slave coast. Trace of custom of killing the kings of Hawaii at the end of a year's reign. A vestige of a practice of putting the king to death at the end of a year's reign appears to have survived in the festival called Makahiti, which used to be celebrated in Hawaii during the last month of the year. About a hundred years ago, a Russian voyager described the custom as follows. The taboo Makahiti is not unlike to our festival of Christmas. It continues a whole month during which the people amuse themselves with dances, plays, and sham fights of every kind. The king must open this festival wherever he is. On this occasion, his majesty dresses himself in his richest cloak and helmet, and is paddled in a canoe along the shore, followed sometimes by many of his subjects. He embarks early and must finish his excursion at sunrise. The strongest and most expert of the warriors is chosen to receive him on his landing. This warrior watches the canoe along the beach, and as soon as the king lands and has thrown off his cloak, he darts his spear at him from a distance of about thirty paces, and the king must either catch the spear in his hand or suffer from it. There is no jesting in the business. Having caught it, he carries it under his arm, with the sharp end downwards, into the temple of Eivu. On his entrance, the assembled multitudes begin their sham fights, and immediately the air is obscured by clouds of spears, made for the occasion with blunted ends. Amamiya, the king, has been frequently advised to abolish this ridiculous ceremony, in which he receives life every year, but to no effect. His answer always is that he is as able to catch a spear as any one on the island is to throw it at him. During the Makahiri, all punishments are remitted throughout the country, and no person can leave the palace in which he commences his holidays, though the affair be ever so important. Part 9. Diurnal Tenure of the Kingship the reign of the life of the king limited to a single day in Nguyo, a province of Congo. That a king should regularly have been put to death at the close of a year's reign will hardly appear improbable when we learn that to this day there is still a kingdom in which the reign and the life of the sovereign are limited to a single day. In Nguyo, a province of the ancient kingdom of Congo in West Africa, the rule obtains that the chief who assumes the cap of sovereignty is always killed on the night after his coronation. The right of succession lies with the chief of the Musarongo, but we need not wonder that he does not exercise it, and that the throne stands vacant. No one likes to lose his life for a few hours' glory on the Nogio throne. End of section 6